Well, good morning. Uh, appreciate today is my birthday. I, I appreciate all the birthday wishes and I am 55 years old today. So I have to. I'm constantly reminded now to drive safe. I think only Sam gets that joke. You know, you're driving down the road, 55, drive safe, 55. Okay. But I got a um, card from the Rosimas. I really liked it this morning. It had a picture of a hamburger and it said salad. A picture of a pizza and it said salad. And a picture of, I forget the third item, taco. It said salad. And they said, eat healthy, enjoy eating healthy on your birthday. That's the kind of healthy eating I like. Well, it's good to be with you. I'm blessed here today uh, in Sunday school. I was so blessed as a pastor to hear the conversations that were taking place because uh, Larry, as he often does, gets us off track to get us on track. But um, we we some of the questions solicited really what turned into a deep theological discussion. And it blessed my heart to hear each person uh, offer their input about sin and about suffering um, and about God's omniscience. And I just was so blessed to hear the maturity there as a pastor, uh, to hear the depth, to hear that people are reading and thinking deeply about God because God is deep and God is rich. So I appreciate that blessing and then the blessing of worshiping together with you as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a great honor and privilege. And now we can together delve into God's holy, holy word to his glory. And we are in the uh, gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. And I think it's safe to say that as we've been tracking Jesus, he's in a season of ministry now that is very near the end. Um, The rest of the gospel of Matthew, in fact, cover for the most part just the very final days of Jesus. And in his final days, things are really heating up. Uh, He made his triumphal entry and he allowed people to hail him as the king of the Jews. He allowed them to praise him as the rightful king. And the Jewish leaders did not like that at all. It caused them to fume. And then he goes in and cleanses the temple. And they want to demand to know by what authority do you do these things? And so while in one sense he was gaining in popularity, in another sense He is accumulating quite a few enemies and they are becoming more and more malicious. Now, Jesus has taught parables and in these parables, we've already looked at many of them. He's warned the Jewish leaders about the path that they are on. He's warned them that he is the son of God and that they are rejecting the very son of God that he sent as the Messiah, as a deliverer and parable after parable. And they're 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 connecting the dots they see, they see the good guys and the enemies in the parable, but in real life, they can't see themselves as the bad guys. So they're not deterred by even these very pointed parables. And in our passage today, they come at him again, but they're not yet violent. They're not yet physical. They come at him again with their words and they craft these questions. They've been thinking deeply. They want him to condemn himself rather than them having to do it. They want him to use his own words. And so they're devising very tricky questions and they're, they're posing them in such a way that there's really no way to win. There's no way to answer these questions and come out unscathed. You'll only come out really with more enemies. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, these Jewish leaders 
We pity their souls. And it reminds me of Paul in Romans 10, I think the first three verses, because he can he can relate to being like this. And he says they're zealous. They have a zeal, but they don't have a knowledge of God. So they're doing all these things that, that they're making sacrifices and putting great efforts into things and they don't they're uninformed. And so Paul says they need salvation. All that zealousness, all that thinking, just like today, many of the cults that we see and we admire some of um, their efforts to win people over to their cause. It's a zeal without knowledge and they need to be saved. This morning, we will look at somewhat of a match of wits. Will the Jewish leaders outwit Jesus in their crafty questions? And the first question involves God and government loyalties. Where should our loyalties lie and to what end? So let's read chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Though their goal with this question is to trip or entangle Jesus, cause him to hang himself, it's a really good question. And said with the right intent, it's something in a sense we need to know as believers, where should our loyalties lie? How can we glorify God? How can we obey the authorities? And where should our money go? Is it okay to support the government? Even when you don't want to. This thing with taxes. And are we robbing God? It's a a good question. How do I most glorify God as I interact in this world? And particularly with government. It's not the question that's the problem. It is the motive behind the question that's the problem. You know, Jesus always pokes at people's motives, like we would talk about getting poked in the eye. He, he, he just is a master at pushing away all the smoke screens that we have in front of us, all the things that we put in the deceptions that we put in front of and the nuances so that nobody really knows what's in here. And Jesus just kind of pushes them all to the side and he goes for the heart. He knows what's in our heart. And he knows what's behind the things that we say. What's really behind the things that we do. In verse 17, he's aware of their malice. They're up to no good. He knows it. And verse 18, flat out asks him, why are you doing this? In other words, why are you doing this in this way? What's behind this question? Challenging 
them. Good question for the wrong reasons. And he calls them hypocrites, of course, because with this wonderful question, it makes you look like you're really thinking about how can I really glorify you, God? Because that's my heart's desire. I don't want to put money in the wrong place and rob you. When really, that's exactly what they're doing. It's a malicious motive. And by the way, if you wanted to be more specific and not so generic about, well, they're evil and they they have evil in their hearts and they want to harm him. More specifically, what sin can you actually put your finger on? Can you put your finger on a sin here? Later on in Matthew 27, even Pilate sees through the facade. Even Pilate can see the obvious of what is really in their heart. So what is this sin? He says in Matthew 27, 18. For he knew that it was speaking of Pilate, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. They are overtaken by envy. It's eating them up. It's warping their hearts. It's warping their minds. They are envious because they are supposed to be the leaders over the people. They're supposed to be the shepherds. You're supposed to follow me, not him. You're supposed to adore me, not him. They want to keep that power and that control. And Jesus, with his way about him, you know, I mean, this guy can love. He can look you right in the eye and just connect. And he says things and he speaks with authority. Nobody's ever seen that before. And so he's winning people over. They are envious of what he is able to do. And that envy is turning to murderous thoughts. Jesus, always challenging our motives. Even Kevin in his opening Statement in prayer reminded of us. What? Why are we really here? Why are you really here? One thing is for sure. God knows. I mean, why do you really sing with the saints? Is it out of fear of being maybe labeled not a good Christian, not a mature Christian? Is it out of fear of uh, people thinking that you don't love God? I mean, what? why are we really here? Why do we really do what we do? Why are we making the plans to move? Why are we making the plans of the future? Whatever it is, God knows it. And he is he pokes at us to push away the facades and get at the issue, not just to injure us and poke us in the eye so that we're walking around wounded. It's out of love. Because if we don't know our own hearts, we won't know they're sick. We won't know that we're headed to hell. We won't know that we are God's enemy instead of God's friend. And so he has to do these things. And he's so gracious and loving to poke at our hearts. Well, you know, Jesus, this is a question. And Jesus rarely actually answers a question that's asked in the way it's asked. And I know, I don't know about you, but I like yes and no's. I like Ask a question, and I want that particular question answered. And Jesus rarely does that. And he answers questions in different ways. But many times, he doesn't answer it directly because he wants us to come up with the answer. He wants us to take, to have to think about it. I mean, it's easy, right? When you're teaching your kids, it's easy to just give them the answers all the time and then they can just copy them on the test. But then do they know the material? So sometimes Jesus, often Jesus will 
help us or enable us or challenge us to take truths that we do know. Okay, I know I know this is true and I know I shouldn't do this. And we rub them together. He wants us to work it out. Just this morning, we read a passage about working out your own salvation. That requires effort, thinking thought. And so we'll take what we do know and 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 process it and think deeply about it and pray about it. How should I apply this challenge that has come into my life? And by doing this, it helps us to learn it, to know it and to own it. Really, it's God shepherding our hearts. I'm sure there's probably something in your life right now. You're just wondering, you know, I just wish God you would just tell me what to do here. And he's not. But there are things that we know that he has told us that will enable us to get where we need to be through the help of God's spirit. I remember uh, reading books as parents about shepherding your child's heart. And when they're real young, you just kind of got to tell them what to do. No. Yes. No. Don't want to do this. Don't do that. But as they mature, you Hopefully, as a, as a gospel centered parent, you want to not just be always telling them what to do. You want to be training them the principle behind it so that they can come to the right conclusion all on their own. It's shepherding a heart. So you I remember sitting down with one of it's hard work, by the way. It's so much easier just to boss. No, no, you can't go. Yes, you can do this. Take out the trash. Do your homework. Make your bed. Go to church. You know, it's so so easy. Why do we have to go to church? Because go to church. It's so easy to just bark orders. The hard thing is to instill within our children principles, truths that they can use to make wise decisions so that they own it and they see it. And now they're behind it. Now I know why I got to go to church, Dad. And he's and they're in the car before you. And Jesus does that. I remember having a conversation. I won't throw the particular child under the bus, but I had a conversation and I man, in my in my mind, I'm doing this great job at shepherding. Something was brought to my way and I was saying, "Okay, and if you did that, what would be some of the consequences and how would it go and how would it glorify God? And if you didn't do this or make this decision, maybe what would be some of the negative things? And I thought I was doing such a good job. And the child just said, if you don't just tell me, no, dad, I'm going to do it. They don't want to be shepherded. They wanted to be told yes or no. What is it about this question that's so dangerous? What is it about this that could really just entangle Jesus in a terrible way and take him down? Well, it's the way it's posed. By posing the question the way they did, you have great authorities at stake here. I mean, you have the world power, Caesar. He has a lot of power. And then, of course, as Jews, they believe in God. Then you have God and he's he requires a lot of loyalty and a lot of allegiance. And now you have two great powers and they're kind of being pitted against one another because they know that if Jesus says, well, yes, you pay taxes to Caesar and all the Jews are going to hate him because the, the Romans are the enemies of the Jews. You don't want to support, give my money to support my enemy. What kind of sense does that make? I mean, there's there's a lot of tension here between the Jews and the Romans. So if he just says pay it to the Romans, well, he's got a lot of enemies that way. What if he says just pay it to God and don't pay your taxes? Well, the Romans wouldn't appreciate that. 
That's like a rebellion against the support. You can be imprisoned, perhaps even killed, for not supporting the Roman emperor. So they shot a bullet at him. And he's got to dodge this bullet. And sometimes in life, we have to dodge bullets. And there's some close calls sometimes. Like if your wife comes to you and says, do I look fat in this dress? So how does Jesus dodge this bullet? He says, well, you render to Caesar what Caesar's. And then he adds, very fortunately, and then you render to God what's God's. And he dodges the bullet because what he does is he recognizes two entities, two positions of authority. Two people that actually are due some loyalty. And in this form, taxes. In other words, they're both legitimate. But who owns everything in the final or, say, in the big picture? God. God owns everything. He owns the world. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He created it all. He owns it all. So really, anything that we have in the form of power or possessions or authority, it's just been granted to us. That's all. Just been given to us by the higher power who sits over all. And that's the case with even emperors, presidents, kings, whatever. It's just granted to them by God. I'm reminded of Jesus' comment to Pilate when his life was at stake. John 19, he answered, you have no authority over me at all unless it's been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It puts things in perspective. So all of Caesar's powers are they're legitimate because they're derivative. They've been granted. They've been given to him by God. And so it's a legitimate thing to support those that God has put in positions of authority as long as the paths don't veer. As long as these authorities, whether it be parents, government, law enforcement, whatever, bosses, as long as these authorities do not tell you to do something against God's superior will. And hopefully they just run side and side. I mean, that's what we want, right? That's why we get involved in politics sometimes is because we want our nation to have Christian friendly, gospel friendly policies. We want God's kingdom to come. And if we can have any say in it, whether it's Christian friendly or not, obviously we would love to have the freedom to go places and and preach the gospel, have the freedom to meet here without an army surrounding us in fear of our lives. We should be involved in these kind of things. And it's okay. And I love this passage because it, it, our, our life in the world doesn't have to be pitted against God. You can worship God by obeying your authorities. It's not one or the other. It is another way to glorify the Lord by submitting to those whom he has put in place as your authority. It reminds me of Ephesians 5 where the Apostle Paul tells wives to submit to their uh, husbands as to the Lord. And then later on in 6, bond servants obey your earthly masters uh, with a sincere, sincere heart as you would Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
The idea is that they're not pitted together. You're actually serving God. Really, you're serving God more than you're serving the authority. You're serving them as an act of worship. So if they ever veer off, you continue to serve God. He's the ultimate master. God is the true object of of worship. So Jesus dodges this bullet. And by explaining how things work and this silences his critics and they go away, but not for long. This time with the next question, it's the Sadducees. The Pharisees blew their chance. So the Sadducees want to take a crack at it and they want to talk and question Jesus about the afterlife. We see this in 23 through 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. How are you going to get out of that one? Jesus said, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Two things we'll look at. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. At his teaching. The first moral of the story is whatever this woman's cooking, don't eat it. Seven. I don't know what I mean. This is crazy. And in that culture, it does make you think, I mean, what do you do with this? Um, it's about the afterlife. Is there an afterlife? They don't think there's an afterlife, not the Sadducees. Uh, that you don't exist anymore. You just decompose. Now, they have a lot of different views. They're nothing like the Pharisees. They're, they're what we might say are the liberals of the day. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the judgment. They don't believe in, 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 in the Messiah. You know, just, just live a good life. Love everybody. Do the best you can. There's no liberation. They're um, not very religious. Not very spiritual. Don't believe in angels and the supernatural, the metaphysical. Just kind of whatever's here. Make the best of it. Acts 23 told us they didn't believe in angels. And they just, uh, they had a very, very watered down view of scriptures and God. Didn't take him very seriously. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were exactly the opposite. They took God very seriously. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the judgment that everything you did mattered. God looked at it. They believed that God was very hard to please. 
They believe in the supernatural, metaphysical angels, life, comrades, all of that. God's very hard to please. You've got to work really, really hard to please Him. Life is very, very serious. The morals, doing right, it's very, very serious thing. You might say they were the moralistic conservatives of the day. So you have your two groups here. The Pharisees were kind of middle to lower class. The Sadducees were usually upper class individuals. And their question as well is just filled with malice. It's filled, laced with evil. Jesus says, because whatever Jesus says, again, like the first question, he's going to just get more enemies. You got these two groups. If you say you don't believe in the resurrection, the Pharisees are going to come after you. Likewise, the opposite answer, the Sadducees, you just lost their support or anybody that believed what they believed. But Jesus is purposely put in these positions to try to debunk his authority, to, to try to cause him to lose favor. I mean, people are going to walk away. And they put this question in such a way as you think, man, well, how do you answer that? If this is real and there's, if there's seven people up there, seven brothers, and there's one woman, one wife... I can't wait to hear Jesus try to get out of this one. Because if he starts to explain theologically, theologically, well, actually, it was husband number two that she will remain married to. He's going to really look silly and people are going to be like, I can't take this guy serious. Got to be kidding me. Very well crafted question. The way they're even able to get. This hypothetical situation before them is because they're referring to a very real law that Moses gave in Deuteronomy. And it's called leveret, leveret marriage. And it blows my mind. And I think I'm glad we don't have that today. I just don't quite understand it. But in that day and time, it actually was a very gracious thing to protect women. Because in that culture, without a son or without a husband... You couldn't just go get an office job or work at a bank. I mean, it was a whole different culture. You needed someone to protect you. And so it was a, a it was really meant to protect women. And so if brother number one passes away, brother number two takes his place. And now she's still in the family and she has the protection. There's a little more behind it, but that's that's the idea. And it was a real law. To protect them. But. They turned it into quite a comical mess. And it would be comical to hear somebody try to explain this. So how does Jesus respond? Well, first of all, he rebukes them as he said, you're wrong. He didn't even wasn't tact. It wasn't gracious. Come here in private. You're just wrong. You ask the question in public. I tell you in public, you're wrong. And he rebukes them. He says they, you know, he, he. Like the Pharisees said, teacher, we know that you're not a people pleaser. He's not a people pleaser. He cares more about truth. So he rebukes them strongly. And then he says, you're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. They don't know the scriptures. Now, Moses really did gave this command. So they know that part of it. And by the way, the Sadducees Bible was very small. Sadducees believed only in the Pentateuch, the laws of Moses. That's it. Not poetry, not Psalms, Proverbs, not the prophets. The Bible was very small. 
And what Jesus does is he answers them according to their small Bible. So he pulls something out of Exodus. Chapter 3. They don't know their Bibles, he says. He's talking about Exodus chapter 3 is the scene where Moses is in the wilderness. He's left. He's and um, he thinks he sees something flickering out in the middle of nowhere. And sure enough, it's a burning bush. And in that burning bush, he meets with God. The holy God. And he draws near. And God speaks to him. And he says, you're on holy ground. Take off your sandals, your crocs, whatever's on your feet. They need to go. This is a holy, holy place. And during that transaction, he says to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, did you catch that? The tenses matter here. I didn't catch it. I needed to be taught. But he says, I am. In other words, your forefathers are not dead. I am their God because they are still alive. And he is schooling the Sadducees on the resurrection and on eternal life. The terminology matters. I am the God of the living. What does that have to do with marriage? Well, you've got to kind of follow it and, and put it together. Moses is being called to lead God's people. Moses is the one that will lead them into this very unique covenant relationship. We looked at it a little bit in Psalm 63 where David opens with, Oh God, you are my God. And it's this a little bit of uh, the idea of my God, my people, is possession, but also a uniqueness of relationship. And God is entering into a covenant. He's saying, you are my people. I will look after you. You're my responsibility now. I will know everything that crosses your path. I will protect you. I will lead you. I will guide you. It's just like parents, that unique relationship. Only they really know their children. I mean, most parents, they, they even learn, it doesn't take long to learn the cry of their infant. And somebody might hear an infant crying in this church, say in the nursery something, and run to rescue and save them. And mom's just sitting there. Why aren't you doing something? Your baby's crying. That's ah, just a that's just a fussy cry. It'll be all right. He'll be asleep in three minutes. They know these things. God knows these things about us because he's entered into this covenant relationship. Doesn't miss a beat. They're my people, Moses, and I will rescue them. This covenant relationship. And it's not a was, it's an is. It's something that when God enters into a covenant relationship, it is eternal. It never ends. His commitment to us never ends. His, his fatherhood never ends. He is always there for us to fulfill every promise as yes and amen. When God enters into these things, it's for Ever. So when God loves you, it's a forever love. Now, in this world, one of the things we don't want to hear is was. That was my son. She was my wife. He was my husband. There's nobody there anymore to love. There's nothing. They're gone. It's was. But with God, it's is. And it's all the time is because we live eternally as his children 
in his presence in one form or another. God's covenant love is eternal. And what Jesus is getting at here, so you don't know the scriptures, because you haven't put it all together even in your own Bible, there is a resurrection. And the other indictment or rebuke is, neither do you know the power of God. Well, what's the power of God have to do with all of this? The power of God is on a different level than what we find here on earth. And where it comes into play is this idea of marriage. It doesn't work the same way in heaven because of the power of God. It's not human, it's divine. God loves me so much, He will never, ever let me go. And so we don't want to underestimate the power of God. And in this answer, Jesus kind of, he pulls back the curtains a little bit and gives us a glimpse of heaven. We would never know this had Jesus not revealed it in this passage. So I look at this honestly. I look at this passage and until really, until I studied it this time, it's never been um, a fun passage for me. I read it and I don't understand. I scratch my head. I'm like, okay, look, no marriage in heaven. God, you, 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 you put a lot of words on ink telling us about the importance of family and the importance of marriage and, and how this union between a husband and wife, and it's a covenant union that's not meant to be broken. And you challenge us to love one another and to make sacrifices for one another. You do all this and you're telling me that when I get to heaven, we're just going to be BFFs? What? That's a downgrade. It's a downgrade. Why would I want to go someplace where my marriage is not the same? That's how I've always looked at this passage. And you know what? I just fell right on in there with the Sadducees. Because in that answer, I am denying the power of God. And what Jesus is saying, you're looking at it from a human level. And it doesn't work from a human level. It works from a divine level. And when we get to heaven, the love will be so much grander, so much deeper, so richer. That the greatest love, romance, marriage on earth will be like a drop in. The things that we revere, the books you all those romance books you read and all the movies that you watch, stuff that's true and it's incredible sacrifice. And people have been married 20 and 30 and 50 and 70 years, never left one another, never, never forsake one another. Always true, faithful there for each other. Big things, little things as as magnificent as that is. When we get to heaven, the love is on a whole other level. It is on such a larger, grander level that what we experience down here, we will think, wow, that was nothing compared to the love that I am filled with. And so we will love one another on a deeper, deeper level and we will love God and be in the presence of God in a deeper, more grand level, richer, thicker. It's hard to understand and fathom. But it is the power of God that makes this happen. It's the principle of heaven. You get it? That's why it is an upgrade, not a downgrade. Whatever happens in heaven, the love and the relationships that 
take place, it can't be less than marriage, right? I mean, if it's so good up there, it can't be less than what we experience in marriage. It can't be equal to what we experience in marriage, no matter how bad or how good. It's got to be better. And it is. And that's Jesus' argument here. It's a kingdom of love, amazing love, a love that swallows up all other loves, supersedes all other loves. And the love we have here is just an inkling of an idea of what we will experience in heaven. And by the way, there's no widows in heaven. There's no singles in heaven, for we are all married to the bridegroom. We all, every child of God, attends the wedding feast between Christ and his bride. It will be a family of all families, a marriage of all marriages, love of all loves. And it comes to us through the power and the grace of God. He thought of it. He will sustain it. He will make it happen and it will be real to us. And we get to live it and we live it forever and ever because there is a resurrection. And there is a marriage in the afterlife. St. Teresa of Avila says the first moment in the arms of Jesus is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one night in a bad hotel. That's what I cry out for. That's what one of the things that we've been promised. That Christ has sustained for us. Eternal life and eternal love. Do you know the scriptures and do you know the power of God? May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.